Um, I'm reading from the NIV, um, chapter 11, from verse 27. Um, the beginning of this chapter, of course, is the account of the Tower of Babel, which um, Jay preached on. Then there's a mic. Jay did the Tower of Babel. He did not. You're right. Sorry about that. Anyway, Michael did. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Sorry, Michael. Anyway, and then there's a, a lot of begetting, so it's establishing a kind of a genealogy. And then we come to um, the account of uh, Abram, who uh, becomes Abraham. So this is the account of, Ab- of Terah's family line, and Terah, of course, is the father of Abram. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Eskah. Now Sarai was childless because she had not been able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham, his son Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The call of Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And of course, uh, Lot <coughs> had lost his own father, so I guess Abraham was a, a father figure to him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sari, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Today we're starting to look at the story of Abraham. 
few years ago, I was at a, uh, when I was still single, so it's a good five or six years ago, uh, I was at a Christmas barbecue of a, of a Christian organisation. And a group of us were standing around, and you know these things, you're, you're kind of trying to meet everyone, but you're, you're trying to not look keen, like you're, but you're still always on the lookout. Um, anyway, a group of us were standing around looking and chatting and um, introducing ourselves, and there were a couple of guys in the group who I didn't know. One of the guys extended his hand to me and he said, Hi, I'm Abraham. And what did I have to say? Hi, I'm Sarah. (laughs) And it was this palpably awkward moment because I was like, please don't ask me if I'm about to be your wife and am I barren and (laughs) all of that kind of thing. It was just just this really weird kind of... Anyway, uh, thankfully uh, someone managed to steer the conversation somewhere else. But I'm like, he must have had that quite a lot because there are a lot of zeros. There's not many Abrahams, but at one point I looked at my phone and I had like 17 zeros... um, uh, my parents' generation weren't super creative with names, were they? But anyway, so he must have had that happen quite a few times, introducing himself. Anyway, I chuckled at that story as I began to uh, dig into the story of the biblical Abraham. But before we get on to Abraham, let's just really briefly remind ourselves where we've come from. The first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, record events that happen before God calls out his people, his, his, the ancestors of the Israelites chosen by God. We see the creation of the cosmos, God bringing life into existence, chaos into order, and in doing so, he brings forth a temple fit for his glory. Uh, he places people in that temple, people made in his own image, charged to participate in the ongoing work of creation uh, and to be a witness to him. God blessed them, he gave them food and each other, man and woman, so they could go forth and multiply and filling the earth. And instead of living the good relationship with God and in their rightful places, the created beings, we know that they grasped after uh, autonomy, they grasped after power, they wanted to be gods themselves, they didn't want to live in the relationship that God had designed. Um, they believed the lies of the snake rather than the truth of who God said and who he displayed he was. And this is what we know as the fall, and consequently they were exiled from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, and now subject to death. And as we've said in several talks, the major effects of the fall were the relationship break between God and humankind, the relationship break between mankind and mankind, and between mankind and the earth, or the rest of creation. And over the span of chapters 3 to 7, we see this spiralling downwards of wickedness, as people work for, walk further away from God, trying to do life on their own, on their own terms, rather than trusting in the Lord. And we looked at murderous Cain, we looked at the drunkenness of Noah, we looked at um, the sinfulness of his sons, and we wound up last time with Michael speaking on the Tower of Babel. Things have gone from bad to worse. And not only are they disbelieving the character of God, but they're actually spreading mistruths about God. They're misrepresenting him. False claims and teachings are being made about him. And essentially, God, Yahweh, is forgotten. He is on the shelf with the rest of the other gods. You can kind of pick and choose. You can believe in all of them. But God is not the one true God, um, or believed to be the one true God. And at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of the passage that we read today, we see what looks like a pretty boring account of someone was the father of someone. Um, and, you know, there are quite a few of these genealogies um, in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, and they can seem a bit easy to skip over because what's the point? They're a bit irrelevant. They're quite boring. But they're actually always there for a reason. 
in general with these lineages, what's amazing is that we, when we see these family accounts, it shows that this incredible God, this God who is so vast and majestic and magnificent, um, who has this massive cosmos to fit his temple, uh, he cares about mankind and he cares about individuals. So much so that he would put their names in this holy book of scripture. That just blows my mind when I think about it. He knows and he cares about us all individually. It's vastly different to the other religious systems and gods in the ancient world. But these lineages are always there for a particular reason as well in each individual situation. And it's not always obvious. You do need to pick up a commentary or two and uncover the reason for them. But in this case, it's to show that despite the way the world has um, spiralled downwards, there is still one remnant of people, one remnant of people who believe or who at least know of Yahweh, and that's Noah's um, line, Shem, Shem's line from Noah, sorry. So, and as we can see from this account, even they are embracing multiple gods. It might not be that obvious when we first read it, but um, Abraham's father, Terah, is a worshipper of the moon. So we see in our reading that they set out for Canaan. They go to, from Ur, but they stop in Haran. They, they stop there, and that'll become significant in a minute. Ur and Haran were both strong centres for worship of the moon god. We see soon that God had actually already spoken to them and said, go on to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran. Um, Abraham's father clearly holds higher allegiance to the moon god than to Yahweh. And this line is actually now at a dead end. When we think about Abraham, I'm actually going to call him Abraham. I know he's Abraham and he gets changed to Abraham, but I'm going to get mixed up. So just, it's actually not a big deal. Um, I'm just going to call him Abraham. Um, He's married to Sarah. And what do we know about Sarah? She's barren. So even though he's from the good family line, it's barren and it's dead. Um, Walter Brueggemann uh, says that barrenness is essentially hopelessness. It's a metaphor for hopelessness. So even the best family alive left on earth, who at least have heard of Yahweh and who still know about him, Shem's line, um, are at a dead end. Because very soon, once Abraham and Sarai die with no descendants, uh, no one will care about Yahweh. And then we get to chapter 12. And there is a palpable change in the text. God speaks. He speaks to this guy, Abraham. uh, And Abraham is a pretty significant guy. Most of us have known or heard of him. Even if you're not a Christian, most people will have heard of the name Abraham and will know something about him. Um, Three of the major world religions claim him as the father of their faith. That's actually a lot of people. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all recognize him as the father of their faith. And for Israel, Abraham was the first of the three patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. And he did some astounding things, as we will discover in the coming weeks as we look at his life and as we cover more of his story. He also did some stupid things. But uh, as one commentator points out, he is the biblical hero of faith. Obviously, a lot of Hebrew people in the Old Testament speak about him in their history. As you go through, you see references to Abraham. Jesus refers to him a lot. Paul mentions him lots too. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer does a roll call of all the heroes of faith in chapter 11. Now, most people get one verse allocated to them. Moses gets six, so he's, he's a pretty faithful guy. But when you get to Abraham, he gets a whole 12 verses. And that's 
significant. So he is a really great guy. But why is he great? Why is he great? He actually started out as a really regular guy. He was from that remnant of Shem, but even that didn't count for much anymore. And as I said, he was married to a barren woman. So what happened? How did he get to be this man that we have all heard of? God's call happened. And that changed him. That was the reason for his greatness. And that's what we're going to unpack today. Abraham heard and recognized God's call and he responded wholeheartedly. He allowed God control of his agenda and allowed God to take him wherever God wanted to go, even when it didn't make sense. Let's take a look at that call. The first part of God's call is go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Okay, let's reword this. Go, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's house. Leave where you feel planted, where you feel at home. Leave where you feel safe and secure. Leave your people, which is the security, the familiarity of your culture. The people who are like you, the people who hold the same values as you. Um, And then when it says leave your father's household, that's actually, um, leave your inheritance. Leave your family's inheritance. Everything that you are going to get when your father dies, leave that alone too. Leave that behind. You need to trust me. That's a pretty big call, isn't it? And not only that, I'm not going to tell you where we're going. Come with me, but I'll tell you later where we're going. He doesn't give him, uh, we're going to go to this latitude, that longitude, 150 miles northwest. He says, just come. And then he says even more crazy stuff. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And you will bless those, or I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. What? Sarah's barren. Things are hopeless. And if he does have a child, there's a 50% chance it's going to be a girl. And she's not going to be the father of, you know, people. Women were, were second rate. They were valued as animals back then. So that doesn't make sense. Anyway, we're going to unpack the words of God's promise in a few more moments. But just let's remind us what Abraham does. He goes. Not knowing where he's going, he, um, he goes with his barren wife and his orphan nephew. And he goes and he arrives in Canaan. Abraham heard the call of God and he was obedient. And it's important to notice that actually this call happened before they set out, before they left Ur, the Lord called all of them. The Lord had said to Abraham, now I hadn't even noticed this before, but as I studied this, I was like, ah, it was in past tense. So I looked up a couple of commentaries. Abraham was called, they were all called to Canaan together, which is um, when they set out. But Abraham's father, as I said, stopped in Haran because he wanted to worship the moon gods. It was more comfortable there. There were people of his own culture, um, people of his own religion. And Abraham could have stayed there too. It would have been, he's gone. He's left Ur. Wouldn't that be enough, God? I've gone halfway. Um, He could have kept his inheritance. He could have been people with a similar culture. But no, he remembers the call and he continues on to Canaan. And Canaan was not a nice place. Um, it was full of Canaanites. But um, you might remember as well, when Noah has his drunken state and he wakes up and he realises what's happened, he curses Ham. And in that curse, um, he declares, cursed be Canaan, so Ham was the father of Canaan, 
Um, Cursed be Cain and the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. So here is Abraham, the line of Shem, walking into the land of the Canaanites. So I'm pretty sure they were not very hospitable to uh, Abraham. They would have been quite hostile because, you know, the family families were quite, and the family tribes were quite um, uh, fractious with each other. And if they had known that, that here come the, a group of, of Shemites or Shemites, um, they're going to... We know that the curse has been put on our family and we don't want them here. So it would not have been a kind or a nice place for Abraham to go. But he goes because he hears the call of God. And then, what, and then just to finish it off, God's uh, promise has this ludicrous twist at the end. To your offspring I will give this land. This land. Now let's point out the white elephant in the room that we have alluded to already. Abraham is 75 by now, at least, and Sarah is barren. She can't have children. Come on, God. Think about it. Um, but, but God... Uh, oh, yeah. The three of them, so uh, Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, are the three most unlikely trios, so to speak, um, to start this new nation. But God specialises in showing up in the most unlikely of places with the unlikeliest of people. Um, often in hopeless situations. And that's where his glory is most magnified. He specialises in bringing hope to the deadest of situations. So what's Abraham's response? He hears and he obeys. He continues on when his father stays behind. He displays radical trust. He continues on through Canaan, on to Bethel and to the Negev. And there he worships. And the verse in um, the NIV is, he called on the name of the Lord. And that's a Hebrewism for began to worship the Lord. So he had come to a place of recognising that Yahweh was his Lord and he wasn't going to worship anyone else. So as I said before, Abraham was nothing special. He was no one special. But the call of God changed him. He heard it, he responded wholeheartedly, he put God in charge, and he allowed God to radically change him and take control of his agenda and direction in life, even when it didn't make sense. And this is what being a Christian is, isn't it? Abraham is one of the first models of what a Christian should be like. A Christian is one who hears God's call and responds to it. You can hear it and you can ignore it and you can do your own thing. You can keep yourself on the throne of your life and you can, um, I'm sorry, but... You're not a Christian if you've done that. Or you can hear it and you can respond to it. You can put God on the throne of your life and allow him to transform you like he did with Abraham. Jesus says, follow me. And it's not just a one-off, okay, God, yep, I'll follow you, and then carry on my merry way, fitting God in with where I can fit him into my life. Even when we don't understand the call and when we don't make, it doesn't make sense to us, when we leave everything we know, so to speak, and we trust him, we leave the comforts of our life, the comforts of our security, culture, family, whatever the call looks like for us, because it will be individual in all of our individual situations. When Jesus says, follow me, and we continue to follow, that's what being a Christian is. Follow me, even though you don't know where I'm leading you, even though you don't know what this is going to look like. And this is a really, a really radical response. Often we hear, like the, hear the call and we're like, okay, God, yeah, I'll follow you, but tell me where you're going first. Can you just tell me your agenda? Tell me the roadmap. Where are we going to end up? Then I can decide, I can make an informed decision on where we're going. 
I'll follow you, but I need to check how you fit in around my agenda. That's not following God. Do you think if Abraham had responded like that, he would have had the life and the legacy that we know him to have? That God would have been able to use him in the way that he did? Abraham was an ordinary guy like you and like me who heard God's call and he responded. He gave him the steering wheel and radical trust. And that God changed him. That God transformed him. And through, throughout scripture we see story after story of God calling to his people. He calls and they respond. Think of Samuel. Samuel in the courts of Eli. He wakes up, he hears a voice. Yes, Lord, your servant is listening. I will come. How did Jesus recruit his disciples? He called them. And when he called them, did he say, hey, boys, want to come on an adventure? Do you want to come and see some miracles? Do you want to come and hang out with me? We'll do ministry for three years and then I'll be crucified, resurrected, and then you'll lead a church, lead a church, and you'll be known for all of history? No, he just said, come. Come, follow me. Come follow me. And the Bible doesn't say it, but I wonder how many other people he said. I wonder how many other fishermen or builders were there, and God said, Jesus said, come follow me. And they're like, no, I'm just fishing my, fixing my nets. I'll come in a couple of days. Or no, I've got something else on. I'll come in a couple of days. We only know of the 12 who actually responded because they responded. And the rest of them would have really missed out. Paul's another guy who heard the call of God. Admittedly, it was a more dramatic call. Most of us don't get angelic visitations, fall off our horse and be blind for three days. Um, but he still, had a, he still had the choice to respond, didn't he? He could have got up, been like, oh, no, I'm going to keep persecuting Christians and going on his merry way. But he stopped, he heard the call of God, and he responded to it. So totally radically changing in that process, allowing God to change him from one of the most murderous persecutors of the Christian faith to arguably one of the biggest fathers of the Christian church and a contributor to the New Testament. God used him in incredible ways. And then Jesus, of course, models this himself perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's, he, he hears the call of God to go to the cross and he wanted, he continued to obey him, but he really didn't want to die. We see that human, the fully human side of him struggling so much that he's sweating blood. It's clearly not on his agenda. But he wanted to follow the Lord. He wanted to follow the call. He didn't want to die, but he said, Father, take this cup from me, but if it's your will, I will obey and I will follow through. I will follow you. Who do you know in your own life who has heard the call of God and allowed it to transform them and form them into go on to do great things? Often when it doesn't make sense, often when um, it's at great personal cost like it was to Abraham. Have you ever wondered how they do it? They don't do it because they were born great people. They do it because they, the call of God has transformed them. They have allowed it to change them. This is one of the biggest take-home points from this beginning of the story of Abraham. God initiates. He always calls. We think we respond to him, but he's always put out that call first. We hear and then we respond. We have a choice to ignore or to respond and allow his call to change us. The call of God is what transforms us. But there's one final point I need to make. Abraham's call was not for himself. Yes, God would bless him, but he was blessed to be a blessing. And he was blessed so that others would be blessed through him. This is the second point to take home. There's only two points to take home. 
blessed to be a blessing. Abraham's call was missional. God used Abraham to bring about his plan of redemption. God's plan, remember how I said everyone was beginning to tell mistruths about God? Mistruths, I can't say that word. Um, But God's plan was to use Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people tasked to tell the rest of the world who God really was. To show his character. To to dismiss the myths that had come from the Babel culture and to declare who God really was. And we know that Israel did a pretty miserable job most of the time of doing that. But they were only the prelude to the main event because then Christ came. Eventually from Abraham's seed would come Jesus and he's the one who did this perfectly. He's the one who is a perfect representation of the Father. He's the one who shows us perfectly who God is and what he's like. And the purpose for us today, the descendants of Abraham, the new Israel, the children of God, the ones who have come after Christ, our purpose is to continue this work of Christ. Being the church, testifying to God who he is, who he really is, not what people think he is, but who he really is. A God of love and a God of grace. A God who brings hope out of dead situations. And we point others to Christ who displays the character of God perfectly because we don't do it perfectly. We, we fall short so often. We take the call to those who haven't yet heard it so they too can hear the call and be transformed. This is the heart of missions. This is the heart of what it is. This is why we meet together. This is why we worship together so that we can hear that call and respond again and again every day. But we can only do this if we've heard the call of God and we've responded with radical trust. Even when we don't see where he might be taking us. As I close, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I'm not going to ask you to shout the replies. Just think in your own heart. Have you heard and responded to the call of God yourself? One of my lecturers always said, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. We can't ride in on the coattails of our parents. I remember vividly the week I arrived at university... My first time away from home, I was out of the covering of my family. I grew up in a Christian home. I had a Christian school. Um, I was pretty surrounded by Christians. Uh, And I got to university, and it was just a stark contrast to anything I'd ever known. And I had this really clear choice in front of me. I could go the way of everyone else, who seemed to be having a lot of fun, um, or I could stick with my faith, and I could own it for myself in a whole new way. Now, I had always already kind of owned my faith during my teenage years, but this was like another mark in the sand where I had to just take it for myself, make it my own. Have you made your faith your own? Have you responded to God because he has called, not your family or your friends, but he's called you to be in intimate relationship with? And if you haven't, I would urge you to do so because it's the only way you can live life in all its fullness, flourishing, deep joy that is not based on your circumstances or your relationships or your achievements or what anyone else thinks about you. That's the only way you can live a meaningful life is to respond to God's call for yourself. You can be as moral as you like. You can be a nice person. But if you haven't got God as your Lord and Saviour, you're not living that life that God's intended for you. He's got so much greater and deeper for you. Life without God is truly no life at all. And you've only got to look at all the celebrities, the people who seem to have it all. They've got wealth, fame, fortune. 
And then they feel so hopeless, they often go and top themselves or take a drug overdose. They're still searching for something. I would love to pray with you after the service if you haven't yet answered the call of God for your own life and you would like to today. The second question I want to ask you, have you let God take control of your life agenda in radical trust? Have you let God take control of your life's agenda with radical trust? Have you responded by putting him on the throne of your heart, allowing him to set the agenda, trusting him to lead you, and sometimes to uncomfortable places? Although it seems really scary, it's genuinely the best way to live your life. God is for us. He desires the best for us. And he wants to transform us more like Christ. But he can't transform us if we don't put him in the steering wheel. Some of you know I've been learning pottery and I've been having a lot of fun making it all. All sorts of useless objects. I can't yet make two objects that look the same. Um, But I'm working on it and it's a lot of fun. It's very therapeutic at the end of the day when I've had three crying, screaming children to go and sit in the shed and just get my hands muddy. And it actually doesn't matter if I make anything. Sometimes it's just having mud going everywhere. Sorry, Graham's very protective of the shed and I make a little mess in the corner. Anyway, um, I've been dabbling in clay and as I sit there on the wheel, I've actually been reminded of why God uses so much pottery imagery in the Bible. Most of you will have come across some of the pottery imagery. Now, I've got some things here. I've got a lump of clay. Here's a lump of clay. It's actually in glad wrap because it's really sticky and I would end up with terrible fingers, right? which is not great right now. Um, but if this lump of clay wants to stay a lump of clay, that's fine, but it's completely useless to me, other than being in the ground where it kind of supports some of uh, the, the plants. Um, I can't do anything with it. I can't use it to carry coffee. I can't serve food on it. I can't use it to hold a beautiful bunch of flowers. Um, No one would say a lump of clay is particularly useful, right? Except for being part of the ground. Um, What what might make something look beautiful is actually what can it do? What's its function? That's more important. A broken pottery cup is not valued by me. One which holds coffee is multiple times a day. But to take this lump of clay and turn it into a useful vessel one that can actually hold coffee, uh, it has to yield to me. So it has to actually allow me to knead it, to wedge it, to shape it, to mould it, to trim it, and then I have to fire it twice in a really, really hot kiln at insane heat. Now, I have had lumps of clay that have not yielded to me. They go straight into the clay bucket. I think, actually, it was my skill rather than the clay um, resisting me. But (laughs) anyway, the metaphor has its limitations as clay doesn't have a will. But we can be like that, can't we? We can be resistant to him shaping us and moulding us and transforming us. Um, And we can't therefore be used by him. Just like that lump of clay has to allow the painful processes of trimming and firing and trusting the potter, we have to allow the painful processes of transformation, trusting in God that he is going to make us into something beautiful, something that can hold his Holy Spirit and be a blessing to the rest of the world around us. So that question, have you allowed God to take you and to take the agenda of your life? Have you allowed him to transform you? Or are you like that stubborn lump of clay resistant to his work? Again, if you would like prayer after the service, I'd love to pray with you. And finally, are you being missional? Have you understood that you're blessed to be a blessing? We can only be missional if we understand this. We 
um, are blessed to be a blessing. And if we live our lives hoping to be blessed, like I know some Christians do, we'll actually be really disappointed because we miss the point. If we live our lives to bless others, we're living out the call of God. And I can't actually think of a great, greater example right now of two people who live this um, than my in-laws. Most of you know Don and Lorraine. Don and Lorraine are two people who heard the call many years ago, over 50 years ago. <laughs> they followed God's call, becoming transformed themselves. And they went to live uh, in Africa. Uh, that was not a comfortable place. Hearing Lorraine's birth stories in the back of Africa made mine look like a walk in the park. <laughs> and mine were not a walk in the park. They went uh, when their family thought they were nuts. Both their parents didn't want them to go. Uh, Don's dad said, you'll never see me again. Lorraine's mum uh, was so against it. She wanted her to have a nice, comfortable life and to have a good job and not to go to primitive Africa. But uh, they allowed the, God, the call of God to shape them. They allowed that to uh, take them to difficult, uncomfortable places. And they blessed so many people. People came to know God and know the call of God for themselves because they went there. Not where their culture was, not where their people were, but where God had called them. They understood that they had been blessed by knowing God and therefore they wanted to be a blessing to others. And they continue to live like this. They're not missionaries in Africa anymore. Uh, they were blessed with their first home when they retired. We complain about the housing market, but they didn't get their first home until they were 65. That's amazing. Um, and what did they do when that house sold just last year? Or maybe this year? They started to give their money away. So they didn't hang on to it for themselves. They, they, continue, they have just always lived this, I'm blessed so that I can bless others. The only natural thing for them to do was to start to bless others. The call of God doesn't always look like going to Africa. In fact, it's been held in many Christian circles that that's kind of the pinnacle of holiness is to go to Africa. Um, but for each of us, the call of God will look different. The call of God uh, will always involve radical trust and it will always probably not be where you want to naturally go. Israel was blessed by being called God's people for the purpose of blessing others and taking the truth of God to the rest of the world. And that's the same for us, God's people today. Are we living in a way that's sharing uh, our blessings with the rest of the world, sharing our resources and sharing our faith? Are we living in a way that we are blessing those who are hard to love? How many non-Christians have you got in your life who you are actively getting to know, not just on a shallow level, but inviting them into your lives so that you can be real with them and share in meaningful ways and, and maybe get to that point where you can share your faith with them, what God's done for you, and to share, share the call of God with them too. It's scary, I know, but it's what God calls us to do. And the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to do these things. Who do you know who doesn't yet know, who, know God who actually could really do with a meal this week? who actually could have a break from their kids for a couple of hours, or be taken out for a coffee. Are you being missional? Have you responded to the call of God for yourself? Have you let God take control of your life? And are you living to be a blessing to others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you speak to us through scripture. We thank you for the story of Abraham, you took an ordinary guy and you called him to follow you. 
and he invited him, you invited him to participate in your plan of redemption and revelation. Thank you that you call us too, ordinary people to follow you. We are called to be your people, blessed to know you and to bless others around us, spreading your call to others who don't yet know you. Father, I ask you to help us to hear and respond to you with radical trust, like Abraham did. Even when we can't see where you're leading us, help us to remember that you are a good God and your intention is to transform us, to become more like Christ. Your intention is that we live a full, joyful, hope-filled life when we are rooted in your love, not in what we achieve or what we know or how much we have. Thank you that you speak life into hopeless situations like Abraham and a barren wife. Thank you that you specialise in what seems dead and hopeless and you bring us forth life. Father, show us this week where we need to allow you to take control, where we need to trust you and open our eyes to see the people in our lives who need to hear about you or who need just a meal or something practical. Show us practical ways that we can bless others. Everything comes from you and we acknowledge that you are before all things. And in you, all things hold together. We love you. Amen.